afraid I'm going to drop it. We're going to skip the presentations and we'll just head straight to, to our psalm today. Psalm 13, if you can join me and stand, we will read it again all together. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Dear Lord, we pray to you. We pray that through your word, through your spirit, you will pierce our hearts. That you will break down our pride and that you will humble us in front of you. Have mercy on us. Be kind to us. We pray, not in our merits, but in the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I have named the sermon, We Will Sing to the Lord. We live in a fallen world, and it might not be the most encouraging phrase to start a sermon. You might think that I'm just looking to bring you down, but trust me, that is not what I want nor hope to accomplish today. What I'm looking to do is to bring light to something that I dare to say everyone has experienced to some degree. Each one of us has been through seasons of despair. Each one of us has experienced the bitterness of hopelessness. Seasons of drought are common. For us, we've been through them, each one of us. And for some, they have been seen short, and for others, it seems that they have no end. But we know what it means to live in a fallen world, a cursed world, tainted by sin, stained by its consequences. We are often caught in the moment when we see ourselves asking why. Our hearts ache for answers. Our pain might be deafening and our anxiety blind us. We find ourselves drifting away into the dark night with no signs of dawn approaching. We try to find reasons or purposes, but our feeble faith seems to be overwhelmed. It is easy to find ourselves in a place 
where hopelessness gives way to bitterness and anger. And we're not just in despair, but resenting the lack of answer and action from God. This is why I believe that it's vital for us to learn how to suffer. Actually, to suffer well. And it sounds weird to say to suffer well. It sounds paradoxical. But God, through His Word, makes a clear point that He is, in fact, invested in this life of His suffering people. We could, in fact, spend most of the day just reading portions after portion of scriptures that invite us to reflect on this. One thing I do want to make clear is that in the Bible, you're probably not going to find a specific answer to your questions. But I can tell you what you can find, the right questions to ask, the right directions, the hope and the sustain, the comfort and the rest of the Lord. Scriptures do unveil why God allows these times of hardship into the lives of those who belong to Him. God, God takes us to the comfort of knowing His purpose in a bigger picture, and through His grace, brings us light so that in the middle of our suffering, in the midst of our suffering, we can have a reason to hope. So, why do we suffer? Because we live. In a fallen world. And still, it doesn't sound very encouraging, still sounds depressing, but in reality, we can actually find comfort in this. The reason is because this means that all these things that bring us pain are not just a thing of luck, coincidence, or just the planets align in a different way. Nor is there an indication that God's plan has failed, that he somehow dropped the ball. Let's get a quick look on how Scripture treats this reality. In your Bibles, you can look the second letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. I'll say it again, 2 Corinthians 4. Verses 7 to 10, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels and clay vessels so that we, the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. In every way afflicted, but not, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Notice that in here there is no shock or surprise, no trace of frustration or dismay. We can see that the way that is presented is as a normal experience for everyone who lives between the fall and the coming of Christ. God's plan has not failed. God hasn't failed. And by this, we can also know that in this stage, in our suffering, He has not abandoned us. He has not abandoned us. So in the book of Psalms, we have been introduced to the songs called Psalms of Lament. Songs of Lamentation. 
And it is fair that we take a couple minutes to understand what the scripture means when they say lament. I find myself often focusing on, on key words in the text, in this case, an idea within the text. Almost a third part of the 150 Psalms are or include aspects of lament. So to say that the hymnal of the people of the Israel reveals that God is invested in how they suffer and how they handle these difficulties of living in this fallen land comes very clear. The songs of lamentation are given by God to His people to instruct their hearts and to teach them to trust in Him. Lament is a spiritual discipline because it is not something that comes naturally to us. It demands effort, strength, and endurance. A lament is a form of prayer, a prayer that is not just a cry for help. It is not just venting out our emotions. Although they are present, they are not the driving aspect of our lament. And prayer only can be taught by the Spirit of God. Prayer is something that we actually need to learn how to do. The disciples didn't need classes or advices on how to talk to people, how to preach. They were sent and they did it. But when they saw Jesus praying, when they saw how he prayed, they went to him and asked him, Lord, Teach us how to pray. There was something in there that they couldn't just imitate by just looking at him. It was something that they needed to be taught to them. It was something that they needed to learn. So Lament seeks to identify and talk to God about our pain. It is a theological exercise where we bring to our hearts what we know in our heads. It seems like it's a short trip. It can take a lot to bring down from here to here. So lament is done in the midst of our present suffering while fixed in the future hope of the return of Jesus. So instead of making us run away from God, it leads us straight into the rest and the comfort of the loving arms of our Savior. The proper practice of lament will help us to put things in perspective, the world, the events, our hearts, our responses. So in this way we may accomplish, we can accomplish its ultimate purpose, which is to lead our sorrow-filled hearts to trust in God. In Psalm 13, there is a structure of lament that David is using. And it's composed with four elements. If you, if you have your Bibles, you can, you can mark them down. The first element in the lament of Psalm 13 is that he turns to God. Verse 1, he turns to God. The second element is that he pours his, out his heart. He pours out his heart. Psalm 13, verse 2. So he turns to God. He pours out his heart. The third one will be, he presents his request, his petition, verses 3 and 4. He presents his request and his petition. And the fourth element will be that he trusts in God, 
verses 5 and 6. Four elements in this lament. They're easily recognizable. He turns to God. He pours out his heart. He presents his request. He trusts in the Lord. And in most Psalms of Lament, we can find these elements. We can find this structure clearly. There are other Psalms that are more tricky that demands that we read them a couple times to identify these structures, but they are there. So if you want to start practicing how to lament, it would be a good idea to follow the pattern that is given to us in Scripture. This, will, this structure will assure that the goal is achieved. So we have identified how this lament is presented in a structure, and we can now take a deeper look at this song and see how God intends to inform our hearts and work His will in us. The first thing that we need to realize is that in the midst of whatever is the circumstance that David is going through, in his suffering, he turns to God. We, we don't have a lot of historical context for the Psalms. There are Psalms that we know and we can trace back to um, Samuel and, and Kings, and we can go through them. Most Psalms, we, we, do not what, what, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's happening. But we do know this. That in the midst of his suffering, David turns to God. The affliction doesn't keep him away. Instead, he instructs his heart to go to his Lord and ask him directly, almost unfiltered, the question that he repeats four times in these two verses. How long, how long, how long, how long? In the Hebrew language, repetition is often used to express a, express a sense of importance. In this case, repetition is used as a form to express intensity. We have the examples, right? Holy, holy, holy. The Lord Jesus will use, here I say, here I say. He will repeat it. To demonstrate that what he's saying is really important. In this case, what David is doing is saying, this is really intense. This prayer does, does not start like most of our prayers. Yeah, um, Heavenly Father, um, we come here, uh, we come to you uh, because we need you. Um, um. He doesn't start like that. It might sound like he's saying the same thing. But it's not. There's a communication aspect here. There's an intensity. How long, oh Lord? How long? These verses state that we can be honest with God. About how we feel. About how we are. On the true state of our hearts, how our souls are. A brother Alan mentioned in his sermon from Psalm 88 that some people take this, this idea of, of going to God as we, as we are, as a, I'll go and say whatever I want and whatever weight I want. But this is not the case. By the opening phrase, How long, O Yahweh? How long, O Lord? He states to whom he is talking to. 
And he does this to present this, this, this bumper. Don't forget to whom you're talking to. It's a, it's a declaration of, of who he is talking to, but also an instruction to his heart to not forget to whom he is talking to. Don't forget to whom you're talking to. And at the same time, it grants the place to be honest in a fearfully humbling way. When was the last time that you approached the Lord, your God, in this way, with this intensity? Do you go to Him disguising your heart in a way that is not real? When was the last time that you faced this crippling sorrow that you had to ordain your soul to run to God and to pour your heart out in front of Him. And this is one of the most precious benefits that we as Christians have. We can go to God as we are. And so often we just forfeit it. We deceive ourselves when we think that God might close the door If we don't go to him all happy and joyfully, it's not real. It's not truth. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? An illustration that can help us to understand these words is uh, is that of a boat. Imagine that you find yourself laying on a boat on the shore... It is a beautiful day like the the day we have today. And under the warmth of the sun, you decide to take a little nap. After you awake, you rub your eyes and try to identify where you are. And as you look back to the shore, you realize that it is much further away than you remember. And you might be tempted to think that the shoreline has moved away from you. But you know that that is impossible. It is the boat that has drifted away from the shore. And in the same way, we often find ourselves thinking the the same way that David. But as he did, we need to recognize that it has been us who have been drifted away from him. The reason for this is the effects of sin. Or it could be the bitterness of God's loving discipline. Even when God seems distant, even when we feel that He has withdrawn His presence from us, what He is accomplishing is that we can get a greater understanding on how much we need Him and how much it hurts to be separated from Him. The fact that we can cry out, How long, O Lord, demonstrate that the winds of grace of God are leading us towards Him. It is His mercy that will push us towards His presence so that we can bring our hearts to Him so He can deal with, with it. So, dear one, hoist your sails, fill them with the winds of the grace from your Lord, and sail to His presence where He awaits for you with open arms. Bring your sorrow-filled heart and place it at the feet of your King. See His grace and His majesty. 
His loving heart for you and find refuge in His arms. Because our King is not like the kings of the land. The kings of men will take for themselves our sons and our daughters. They will take the best from our fields and their portions, their portion of our earnings. But the King of kings, the saving Messiah, on His throne, He shouts, Come to me, all you, all who, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's no other king that dares to say that. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The vaults of heaven open for us. And all we need to do is go. Because the psalmist finds himself in the presence of God, of the God that he felt was away, but that in reality was close and attentive to his cry, he applies this handbrake. There is a significant change of pace in verse um, 3 and, and 4. In verse 1, it is, O Lord, but in verse 3 it changes, it's, O Lord, my God. It's not the God that is away. That is the God that is close, that is mine. There's a sense of belonging. This is faith growing in the heart. We cannot allow our hearts to run wild into the fields of bitterness and anger. Instead, we have to restrain it to the truth and comfort of our God. You need to get used to say it that way. He is your God. He is my God. He is our God. He's not just a God up, further, away. He's yours. He's mine. So our lamentations might sound like complaints, but as we develop, as we learn to lament, we'll see how we find ourselves using a language of more specific requests. For example, David uses three instances to present his petition, to bring forth his petition. He asks to be seen, to be answered, and to be revived. And it, seem, and it could seem that this is just some desperation outburst, but there's a reason why he has phrased his prayer in this way. In some context to understand this, 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, verse 9 and then verse 11 and 12, I'll just read some portions that are here. And I have been with you, this is Samuel talking to, to David, uh, giving the, the message of, of God to David. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you. So here, in the midst of suffering, what David does is to go back to God and bring what he has promised wrapped in prayer. We pray the words of God. To God Himself. And God's, God doesn't need the reminder. 
He knows what he said. But instead, this practice of bringing back to God his own promises, find his purpose in that by doing this, we establish that we trust, that we believe, that what he has, he has said is what will be. That we not only believe in him, but that we believe him. Not that only we believed in him, but we also believe what he has said. I was never good at algebra. I, I did well in mathematics until they start throwing letters to it. A, a plus B equals C. What, what's that? Just, in my head, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it. And I had a teacher that, that, that saw my despair every time we had to um, do our, our worksheets. And he, he came to me, he approached me one day, and he said, I, listen, when you get to the one that you can't do, just come to the desk, and we'll figure it out together. So eventually, I went to the desk. And, and I said, teacher, I can't do this one. I, I don't get it. I, I can't do it. And he patiently showed me uh, how to do it. He showed me the, the formula. And with his help, I, I, we, we got to the answer. I went back to my seat, to my seat, to my desk. And after a couple minutes, I went back to his and then back to my sit, and then back to his. And this, and this happened throughout almost the whole class. And at the end, he just frustrated. He looked at me, and he said, this is not what I, what I meant when I, when I offered help. And I said, but you said, you said, come when you find the one that you can do. I can't do this. I can't do this. So I go. You said it. God does not get annoyed by your prayers filled with his promises. In fact, he expects you to do that. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 49 and 50. Remember the word to your slave, to your servant, in which you have made me wait. Remember the word to your slave, to your servant, in which you have made me wait. This, this is my comfort and my affliction, that your word has revived me. So in our prayers, we can vent out. But we need to be careful and remain certain that we will not fall into the chaos of the moment. We need to approach God through his words and cool down our troubled hearts in the stream of his grace. It is in the watering promises of our Lord that in the dry soil of our hearts, faith can grow and bear abundant fruit. Now, notice that in this song of lament, we don't find immediate answers to the questions. Circumstances don't seem to have changed and troubles seems to just linger. And it is here where we find a little word with a big meaning, meaning. But, and we are more familiar with the use of this word in the New Testament, and more precisely in, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. This is, this is uh, every theologian's favorite 
little word. Every, everyone, there's, there's books that have been written about just this, this word. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 starts with, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then verse 4 adds, But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. But God. There's a lot of meaning in that just, in that just little phrase, but God. That actually can brings a lot of comfort to, to troubled souls. Just say that to yourself, but God. When, we, when you look at your sin, you can say with full assurance, but God. And in the same way, we can look at our despair, and as David said, but I. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. But I have trusted and your steadfast love. How come that this song has moved from lament to praise? At which moment did, did the tune change? There's a word in, in the Hebrew language, and I try as much as I can to, to avoid the use of words in, in, in Greek or Hebrew in my sermons, because then I, I, I feel like you go home and you don't even remember the word anyway. <laughs> but, but with this word, I had to make an exception. And the word that I'm referring is the, the word hesed. Hesed. It's like a hard J, hesed. And this psalm is translated as steadfast love. But as it happened with many words in the original languages, this word is difficult to translate into a single word or a small phrase because sometimes it has been translated as mercy, and other times kindness. Some old translations will use the loyal love of God or, or literally the covenant loyalty of God. But I think my pick for this word would be loving kindness. The loving kindness of God. This word is used in the scriptures not to just describe God's actions toward us, but it's used to describe God's character. This is not something that He just do or does, this is something that he is. So this is the difference. For many years, the, the word was only used in, in Christian circles. It was, just, it's a, it was a word that belonged to Christians, loving kindness. Didn't, it wasn't used in any other context. And it happened that I, I, I was trying to see definitions of the word, and I, and I type on, on, the, on the search bar on, search bar on my um, Internet Explorer, our browser, and it turns out that <clears throat> loving kindness is something that is used by the world now to refer to a form of therapy, a self-affirming type of therapy. Be kind to yourself and tell you nice things. You know, look yourself in the mirror and tell you that you're great, you're a champ, you can do it, you got it, you're beautiful, successful. Sounds like Joel Austin type thing. But this is used in the Bible and Scripture to describe God's character. 
Loving kindness is part of who God is. So this idea of the loving kindness of God has implanted several other aspects of the character of God, and, and it's imbued with, with other aspects of the character of God. For example, the Lord finds his delights in it. Um, I'll just read Micah, Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgressions of the remnant of the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He delights in loving kindness. This is the heart of God towards those who are his own. I'm going to read some other portions of Scripture because I really want you to, to be flooded by the beauty of and majesty of this. He delivers us from enemies and troubles. Exodus uh, 15, 13. Exodus 15, 13 says, In your loving kindness you have guided the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have led them to your holy habitation. He delivers us from enemies and troubles. He offers us comfort. Psalm 119, verse 76. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort, comfort me according to your word to your servant. The comfort and the loving kindness of God. Numbers 14, verse 19. Numbers 14, verse 19. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. The loving kindness of God. He redeems us from sin. Nehemiah. Chapter 1 verse 5. The loving kindness of God assures us his promises. I said, I beseech you, O Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and fearsome God who keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. The loving kindness of God assures us his promises. And the list goes on. In fact, in Psalm 136, the word is repeated 26 times. The steadfast love of God endures forever. The loving kindness of God endures forever. And this is the gospel promise. The steadfast love of God, the unchanging, loyal, immutable, compassionate, and gracious love of God demonstrated in the cross of Calvary. God kept His word. The promised Redeemer who came to free those tied in the chains of sin, who came to bring light to those in darkness, who brought bread and water of life to those who hungered and thirst. Who brought us near to the throne of God. Who made us be part of God's family in which we can cry, Abba, Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. So if God is with us, if Deus pro nobis, if God is with us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, for I am convinced that not neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, what and who can be, can be against us? The meditation of David, this, this prayerful lament, has reminded him of something more powerful. Something bigger, more certain than this momentary tribulation. The unending, everlasting love of God. That heart that in verse 2 and Psalm 13 was full of sorrow, now it's a heart that rejoices. And a heart that fills the lips with song and adoration to the one who has dealt bountifully with him. Songs that exalt what he has done and what he has given. It is because we know that. We know that if we have the love of the Father today... It is because we have had the love of the Father even before He laid the foundation of the earth. Another verse that you can take home and to meditate through your week. Psalm 103, verse 8. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness, kindness toward those who fear him. And verse 17. But the loving kindness of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. The chesed of God, the loving kindness of God, the steadfast love of God. My dear, life on this side of eternity might be full of sorrows. 
We might encounter ourselves dealing with our sin and its consequences over and over again. In an oversight, we'll have to deal with something that we thought that was dealt with already, only to realize that it came back and it brought reinforcements. We'll find ourselves tired and frustrated, afflicted and downcast more times than we can count. And you know I've been there. I know you too. The weight, the pain, the shame. But you know who also knows? Your Redeemer. Your Jesus. Your Lord and your Lord and your God. He knows and not only he knows but he cares. He knows what it is to be afflicted, despised, rejected, betrayed. It is because he knows that he cares. So bring your heavy load and leave it at the feet of the cross. Behold the bloody tree where your Savior hang. See the empty tomb, the stone rolled away, and run. Run to the loving arms of your Messiah. Know this, affliction, sorrow, suffering, they are not eternal. Your Lord is. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will, be, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Because the first things have passed away. It's another song, another hymn that I would like to leave you with. I think you have sang this hymn in here in church. Here is love. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven, peace, and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. And thy truth, thou dost direct me by thy spirit through thy word. 
and thy grace my need is meeting as I trust in thee, my Lord. Of thy fullness thou art pouring, thy great love and power on me, without measure, full of boundless, drawing out my heart to thee. Dear Lord, we come to you because in you we found our comfort, in you we found our salvation. You have loved us with everlasting love, with unchanging eternal love. We are not worthy of your loving kindness, but you have poured your grace over us. We are the ones who wonder how it can be that you have loved us. Sinners condemned and unclean, you have taken our sins and our sorrows and made us your own. Jesus, you you bore the burden to Calvary. You suffered and died. What a Savior you are, O Lord, lest we forget how you came and set us free. We look forward to the day that we'll join the hopes of those who your sacrifice redeem and will fill the earth with the praise to your name. Oh Lord, we come to you, tears in our eyes, sorrow in our hearts. We acknowledge that among us there are those who are suffering. Oh Lord, our God, we cry, hear our prayers, heal us, bring song to our lips and make us rejoice. And the Lord of all salvation. Amen.